Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Well, this week, Republicans are having their own virtual convention, but one of the president's most ardent supporters is noticeably absent. The other day, I had the pleasure to speak with political reporter Ben Jacobs, who's been doggedly covering Kanye West's quest for the presidency for New York Magazine and other outlets. Despite having no actual campaign and zero chance of victory, Kanye is paying Republican operatives to get him on the ballot in a handful of states and skirting the FEC deadlines to avoid disclosing whose interest this vanity project is serving. Ben's been digging into the story all summer and what he's uncovered about the shadowy operations of Kanye's newest marketing endeavor blew me away. Enjoy the show and please stay vigilant as this surreal election season marches on. And remember, when you go to the polls, be it by mail, in person, however you are able to vote this fall, remember to plan your vote in advance. Ben Jacobs, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you. And in fact, I woke up this morning with a tweet from you about midnight on the on the East Coast saying Kanye West FEC report is now 72 hours late. So let me just set this up for everybody. You know, they know by now you're here to talk about Kanye. And uh, this is the politics of truth. We pride ourselves on addressing the intersection of music and politics. And I can't think of an example where music and politics have collided in this way ever, ever. Certainly not in the United States. You have been following Kanye through this whole, his whole crazy presidential run here. First of all, I mean, is this really his presidential run? What is behind this? Like, I think there's a narrative out there that this is about him taking votes away from Joe Biden. But your reporting seems to indicate that it's more complicated than that. It's it's very complicated than that. It's There's elements of all sorts of things. There's a vanity campaign element to this here. There are people for whom there are rich people for whom their hobby is running for office. There's a guy in who ran for Senate in nine different states in 2018. There's, it's a little bit of like that. There's an element of taking away votes from Joe Biden. This is the campaign is filled with Republican operatives. And when you think about how Donald Trump approaches politics, that if you've been snipped within 10 miles of one of the Republicans who thought about primary him in 2020, you were dead forever. But Republicans are without any issues doing stuff for Kanye West. That that's indicative there. And there's also the reporting about the fact that Kanye um, is going through a bipolar episode that there's mental illness. So they have all these factors and it's trying to figure out how they sort of come together. And it's a combination that we've never really seen before, reinforced by the fact he's also really, really rich and can do this stuff. And the the analogy I use is that it feels like Captain Cook getting off the boat in Australia and seeing a kangaroo for the first time. 
It looks like a lot of different things I've seen before, but it comes together in a way that's really weird and unusual. That's what makes it different that this is something very new because there's a lot of elements that we sort of know the key parts. We can identify them, but they come together in something that's very weird and outlandish that we've never seen before. So what is the timeline here? When did this begin? His campaign started with a random tweet on the 4th of July um, saying, I'm running for president. And some people took that seriously. There's sort of celebrity coverage and he's clicking. He gave a crazy interview a couple of days later to Forbes magazine, where he talked about wanting to run the country like Wakanda, which is the fictional country from the movie Black Panther. And there's vaccine done. Now, look, it's weird and crazy. Uh, and I covered politics for a very long time. I didn't particularly care about this. This is a joke. This is a celebrity story. And then a couple of days later, I got reached out from someone I've dealt with before who said, hey, I want to flag something for you. I was talking to this guy and he got offered five grand to go to Florida for Kanye for a week to get him on the ballot. Okay, that's strange. Like this doesn't seem... And I still was skeptical and I talked to the person and I still don't know if I would have entirely believed him unless the fact that he found the approach so weird that he tape recorded the conversations. So suddenly it's like, oh, wait, this is actually something real. This is not, you know, Kanye tweeting crazily. He's spending money to do this. And it set me off down a rabbit hole from which I don't know if I'll have ever escaped. So wait, so just to be clear on this, the the operative who was contacted by Kanye West's people to get him on the ballot reached out to you. He reached out to somebody else who reached out to me that it was playing playing the telephone. Okay. And so these conversations now exist. They have been recorded. Yes. So there is evidence. You know, it's really interesting as we have this conversation this morning. I saw a, a report this morning that Melania Trump's former assistant or a chief of staff, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what her, her position was, but, but she's got a book coming out about their relationship on September 1st. Apparently, she alleges that she's recorded conversations of the first lady having negative things to say about the president and his, his adult children. And it made me think about Omarosa. So Omarosa recorded these conversations. And I know we're separating Kanye from Trump to some extent, but do you see this larger kind of thing going on with these characters like uh, these entertainment politicians like Trump, like Kanye, who they're not very smart. They don't think of everything. They're not very safe and secure about protecting their privacy when they engage in some outlandish behavior. I think there's certainly some similarities there in terms of that. And there's also the thing that the one thing I've encountered is Kanye, uh, from all accounts, is actually the most liberal with using non-disclosure agreements of apparently folks in the music. And that's not this is something that's relatively foreign to me. But that's a trait that's common with Trump, too, that, you know, he tried to make people at the White House sign non-disclosure, which you really can't do as a government official. But there should be awareness that people out there are taping things and that there's this vulnerability there. Um, and, you know, part of this also the cultural aspect that it's not so easy to tape people that, you know, 30 years ago, it was going to be hard to walk into a room with someone holding a boombox and say, oh, this is just here on the side. And now it's just on your phone. 
Um, and, you know, it's also dealing with some of the legal framework with this stuff, too, because obviously you can't take record conversations without the other party's consent in a number of states. But I think there, there's something there going on, and I don't know if it's necessarily exclusive to entertainment and poli- these political and entertainment people. But certainly the, these are folks who might be less less likely to be always aware of what they're saying when they're saying it. So these Republican operatives begin to work to get Kanye on the ballot. Take us from there. So they started the Florida and they pulled back in Florida um, and left things very, very unclear. Florida is a very hard state to get on the ballot. And that just to take a step back about getting on the ballot, that states have various rules about getting on the ballot. There are four states where you can just write a check. But in most states, you have to collect a certain number of ballot signatures. And it's hard, hard to get valid signatures, but for every two signatures you turn in, maybe one will be valid. You need to match up the signature, the address. Um, and, you know, states go from some states, Tennessee is 200, requires 250 signatures. California requires 200,000. And there's, there's a spectrum to there, and it's not correlated to state size. So they pulled back in Florida because Florida required 130,000 good signatures. And it was sort of unclear what was happening there. And that's when my reporting came out. And my sense is it spurred Kanye to take things more seriously and file with the FEC because it was sort of a sense of he out, is he in? And I tried to be careful with the wording because for me, the story was that there's actually something going on here. This wasn't a joke that he was out in Florida. And the one clear thing with the Kanye campaign is that it's not a campaign and there's no real infrastructure. And a couple of days later, it was the deadline to file in Oklahoma, where you just have to write a $35,000 check. And from there, it was sort of off to the races. Then that weekend, you have his now already infamous rally in South Carolina, where he started crying and attacking Harriet Tubman uh, in an attempt to get on the ballot there. And it turned out he never filed in South Carolina because they screwed it up royally. And the next day they filed in Illinois where they got thrown off the ballot because they screwed up all their signatures because they had a day to do it. And it was sort of all of this very rushed thing. In my sense, it was sort of around that point, if not before, is when you start to really get the republicanization of the campaign. But there are definitely Republican ties there, but you start to see things become more professional in how they're doing things. But you start to see that, for example, that part of filing is you submit lists of electors. You know, because you're not voting for president, you're voting for people who cast electoral votes at the county of the state. And suddenly the electors go from start to go from random people to Republican operatives who are there. And then this weekend, you had an article that came out in New York magazine. Uh, Kanye West presidential campaign is both proceeding and unraveling. And you talk about these electors. One in particular was a woman named Saria Cutler, who said someone approached her at the mall for what she was told was a, quote, petition just to put somebody's name on the ballot. She went on to ask, quote, is there any way I can take my name off? End of quote. There was no mention of Kanye West. So how are they signing these people up? Are they just writing people's names down? Um, That seems to be the case. And I think part of it is that, you know, the electors at this point, you know, as I've sort of brought through reporting that they've had Folks with Republican ties in Vermont, they had someone who is literally a delegate to the 2020 Republican convention in Charlotte for Donald Trump and whose wife holds a Trump administration job. And I think they started to be more careful. And the idea is that it's harder to keep this narrative if they're just getting random people. The thing is, when you're just getting random people, you don't quite know who, who they are. 
and they don't quite know what you're doing because the goal is just to get them on right away. And Virginia has sort of stringent requirements about how you do things by district. So I think there's the sense where my understanding of these situations, you had, you know, someone standing there collecting normal signatures to get Kanye on the ballot. And there's a notary standing right there and just, hey, be an elector and just fill it out real quick. And people don't have had to explain what the electoral college is to folks. And this seems to be a shift in approach because this is more and more Republicans getting tied in. And the one interesting thing they did is they got on the ballot of Louisiana the same day, which is just a state where you just send a check. And the electors there, at least two, were LSU students. But what was interesting is that the, the, the electors, they were registered Republicans, but seemed to be relatively random. Uh, but the notary who, who did all of this is on the state central committee of the Louisiana Republican Party and his law partners, former law partners with the former uh, head of the Louisiana Republican Party, who's now moved on to run the North Carolina Republican Party. So that they're still sort of there, but they're sort of taking, trying to take a step back to make it a little bit less obvious, because I think folks are noticing. So they obviously must believe that a Kanye West run for the White House is going to take votes from Joe Biden. But you argue that may not be the case. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that some of the beliefs amplifying this and the gamble taking and, you know, there's also the question of how much some of the Republicans there's as much a mercenary element as an ideological element if they're getting paid. But no, the data from folks I've talked to, says Kanye takes more from Trump than from Biden, in part because if people are inclined to vote for a celebrity with a tendency for saying uh, problematic and controversial things, they're not necessarily Biden voters to start off with. When you look at his approval numbers, he's totally underwater with Democrats, that he is loath there. I mean, the guys, you know, gone around, been in the Oval Office wearing a MAGA hat, talking about Trump, and that it's a question, you know, my sense of the typical Kanye voter, it's, you know, white, non-college educated male, 20s or 30s, you know, who wants to blow everything up, likes video gaming and UFC and monster energy drink. I mean, that's sort of the demographic. What I've gathered is that, you know, there's particular backlash, in, especially in the African-American community, when they're even trying to get signatures for Kanye, which is one of the reasons why you're starting to run to these issues where people are being vague about what they're doing, because Kanye draws a pretty distinct backlash at this point, uh, particularly around his presidential ambitions. So as of today, where is he on the ballot? Where will he not be on the ballot? And what does it mean that his FEC filings are late? So right now he's on the ballot in... Arkansas, Colorado, Vermont, and Oklahoma, he's almost certain, like, it's just the technicality. I just want to be careful that he's not on the ballot in Louisiana and Utah, but he'll be on the ballot in Louisiana. So most of those states are red states. The only state there that's actually broadly competitive is Colorado. He's filed to get on the ballot and failed in New Jersey, Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin, Montana, and West Virginia. And they've been tossed off for various reasons there. Um, he's tried to gather signatures in South Carolina and New York, and they never bothered to file. At this point, they're moving forward with efforts in Arizona, Kentucky, Wyoming, Idaho, and North Dakota. So Arizona of that group of states seems to be the one that could cause the most chaos. Yes. And, and obviously, the Wisconsin filing was the one that was primed to be a huge, huge issue, that Wisconsin was such a close state and has been such a close state. And he got thrown off the ballot there for uh, what could best be described uh, using Kanye terminology as late registration. There's a five o'clock deadline. 
and they didn't file until after five o'clock. And there's sort of some uncertainty as to why they didn't show up at 501, 502. But that ended up getting them tossed off because it's a pretty bright line rule. And a, their legal argument was, was that five o'clock means until 501. But that also detracted from the fact the person who did file, which is the most interesting part of it, is an attorney named Lane Rowland, who the week before, literally one week before she showed up at the Wisconsin Board of Elections to file Kanye West's petitions to run, uh, had signed a legal brief as part of her representation of the Donald J. Trump for president campaign. So what about the FEC filings? What does that mean? All campaigns have to file with the FEC. Um, that it's where you say where you've raised money from, what you've sent money from. And this is all mandatory and everyone does this. This is, you know, the basic campaign finance stuff. Everyone supports disclosure on their questions about whether there should be limitations. What that means is that the FEC says if you're a presidential campaign and you have spent or intend to spend more than $100,000 in the course of the campaign, you have to file every month. Uh, Kanye's campaign almost certainly has spent more than $100,000. It's almost impossible to do that in the filing date for what they spent in July, um, when they spent $35,000 again in the ballot in Oklahoma, ran face, all sorts of Facebook ads in South Carolina, held a rally in South Carolina, spent money in various other states to get on the ballot. It was August 20th. He's yet to, yet to file that. And the issue there is it's less interesting to see what he's raised because it's Kanye didn't really even have an option to solicit money until he updated his website recently for donors. It's a question of what he spent and particularly who he's spending it on, that if this campaign is all done by Republican operatives on the sly, that has to be disclosed. This campaign is just hiring random people, that has to be disclosed. And what he's spending his money on is the biggest tell. And at this point, he hasn't done it. And this is something that, to the best I can tell, and yeah, one of my first phone calls after this is going to be to the FEC, is there doesn't seem to be any precedent for it, that this is sort of even when people try to get around the rules, this is something no one ever you know, particularly thought to do. And the issues right now is the FEC is, has no legal ability to rule on anything. It's been deadlocked for years. And because of the fact that there's supposed to be six commissioners, and I believe there are only three right now, they don't have a quorum to formally meet and hold, make decisions. So that in theory, he could get away with it. And there's sort of real concern from my perspective, that this of all sorts of slippery slope thing, that if Kanye can get away with something, who knows who knows what what follows suit there. But this is really a concern because this is about disclosure, that this is a presidential campaign who's hiding what it's spending money on. That raises real, real concerns moving forward for any presidential campaign. So there's no one to hold anyone accountable and this is the the trump error right that's the whole thing the guardrails the people or the institutions that have always been there that people just respect could be a candidate releasing their tax returns because it's tradition or it could be fec oversight that is now gone that's now gone and this is something where you know certainly trump has been willing to flout norms all the time but this is something where you're still flouting a hard and fast rule. And it's curious what happens and how this proceeds and if they ever actually file, because there is some level of legal liability on this. But you know, at this point, you know, so much of the Kanye reporting is, is trying to shine a flashlight into a black hole and getting small gleams of things back.
Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. How are Democrats responding to this? Is the Democratic Party mobilized if they need to combat Kanye in some way? And could they raise legal challenges because of the FEC? That's the next step in terms of what happens with the FEC and filing templates. But Democrats have been, there have been aggressive legal challenges filed to get Kanye off the ballot in some of these states. Um, and, you know, that certainly, and, and Democrats have looked upon those kindly. Um, And I think there's been a sense of anger and frustration that what clearly looks like, uh, you know, from their perspective, a pure Republican operation to drain votes in a deep one that has a deeply cynical and, you know, certainly borderline racist view of black voters that they'll just lazily embrace an African-American candidate, regardless of his merits or platform. And that it really provokes you know, some backlash in the African-American community and when you think about major African-American Democrats. But at this point, I think it's sort of the the arc of concern is slowly starting to recede a little bit that Kanye is off the ballot in Wisconsin, Kanye is off the ballot in Ohio, that there's less of a chance for him to make an impact. And the fact that this has become so open about what it is, uh, that that's that sort of raised concern. So it's one thing if this is being done subtly, but uh, when Kanye West is, you know, just hanging out with Jared Kushner and, you know, in the mountains in Colorado, that, you know, there's no one's guessing. No one has to make any guesses about it. And it becomes clear what this is. And this, of course, is, you know, someone who politically like showed up in the Oval Office wearing a MAGA hat. Like there's less guesswork here than might be with in other situations. Not that anything needs to make sense these days, but I would think from a Trump campaign standpoint, Kanye would be more effective as a surrogate. That would be true. Um, but it's also the question whether my understanding is I don't think Kanye is a sham candidate, you know, that there are these folks who get put up in Chicago with the same last name, John H. Smith to run against John T. Smith and split the John Smith votes. That's not that, that this is more opportunity, that this is something Kanye was pursuing on his own for his own reasons. And people saw the opportunity and, you know, from a, from a Republican operative side, you know, as long as you've run the traps on it and you're not going to get forever blackballed by the party, the upside is that you can theoretically drain votes away from Joe Biden and it's kosher. And in the worst case, if you don't, you've still gotten paid for it. So it's a win-win. So what is the Kanye West platform? Not that we need platforms because another thing that happened in the past 24 hours is the Republican National Committee has released that they are not going to have a platform this year, which is the first time in history that an American political party, one of the two main ones, does not have a platform of their beliefs 
and their agenda and their vision for the country. What is on Kanye West's platform, as best you can tell? Well, he put this out on his website with 10 things. It's mostly very vague. I mean, it's a lot of it is actually having read a lot of Republican consultantees. A lot of it feels like Republican consultantees. But it starts off with a lot of vague, vague platitudes uh, with the concrete call for a return to school prayer and sort of mostly platitudes there, like their environmental platitudes about clean air and clean water, which he's in favor of because there are people who very few people are against clean air and clean water. Again, um, sort of weird things about, you know, this vague sort of Trumpian farm policy thing about America, there's sort of America first type language, but it's mostly vague and it's all tied in with biblical passages, though I'm still trying to figure out quite what translation of the Bible they've, they've used for that because it's... The prosperity gospel. Uh, yeah, I need to figure out figure out which it's whether it's the King James prosperity gospel or the New International prosperity gospel. But that's sort of very vague. But outside of that, if you're just essentially relying on his occasional tweets, which are relatively inarticulate, and his long sort of spree about abortion at this July twentieth rally, where he seemed to, you know, cry and worry about you know, how he almost aborted his daughter, his mother almost endured him, but then seemed to change his mind a little bit while talking to a random attendee he brought on stage. It's a mishmash. This is not, this is not something that's thought out. And it's, there's sort of, it's more a set of impulses than actual, even big policy. And what does the president feel about this? Because we always hear that he doesn't like when someone else gets the spotlight, right? He could love you, and he loves you if you love him. But if you start to get the spotlight, he doesn't like that. He's, he's been, when, when he was asked about it, he's been surprisingly, uh, you know, friendly for it. You know, he's, he hasn't had any issues with it, which is, which is unique. Someone who went from being in the Oval Office as a MAGA hat, who went from meeting with Trump Tower with Trump when he first got elected to running for president. And Trump's fine with it. This is, this is not a guy who normally takes any sort of challenges very well. And that's sort of what, what the most interesting thing is, that he uh, you know, has far kinder words to say about Kanye than I think literally anyone else who's ever been on the ballot against him. And what about Kanye's family? What about Kim? How, is she concerned about this? Is she supportive? I, I have to say my, my sources in Kardashian land are, are not, what they, not what they are, you know. Not, not my forte, as I do. This is not my thing. But there's been a public Instagram post from, uh, from Kim Kardashian in July where she talked about you know, Kanye suffering from bipolar episodes. And there have been anonymous quotes in TMZ and People and all the sort of those types of magazines about how she's concerned and not, not particularly a fan of his presidential bid. I can't confirm any of that. I'm just a normal hack politics reporter who wandered into this by accident and deals with questions of ballot access. And, you know, ask people in, in Secretary of State's office across the country about, you know, electors forms and notarizations and all that stuff. But uh, it doesn't seem like Kim's a fan. You know, and I, and I don't think Melania was a fan at first either. So they have something in, in common there. Um, let me ask you, though, as a freelance political journalist, what else are you following? Are you like full Kanye 24-7? I'm not full Kanye. I'm not trying not to be a full Kanye person. This is not something I ever anticipated would last last this long. But, you know, doing, covering the convention tonight, 
you know, had a big piece on the politics and demographics of Georgia ahead of 2020, um, because Georgia is going to be competitive presidential race. It has two Senate races at the same time, competitive House races, and covering all sorts of stuff. I mean, I think my last big piece for New York Magazine before I started on Kanye was about the politics of China in the 2020 election. So you're doing your work without traveling? Yes. So how does one cover Georgia politics from their home in Washington, D.C.? From the telephone. I mean, it helps I've spent time in Georgia that when there's this special election in Georgia in 2017, the Georgia 6, I spent a lot of time down there and sort of built up folks, but it's just time on the telephone and trying to hash things out and knowing that you're missing a sense of what it's actually like on the ground and talking to actual voters, that you're sort of having to deal with politicians and pundits and you're actually missing the voices of people on the ground, which matters for this stuff. There's no campaigns going on, but you know, being able to see the mechanics of the events and just sort of seeing it in action makes a big difference. Do you have any sense on which way Georgia will go? I mean, is, is this a year where the Democrats have a realistic chance of breaking through in Georgia? Does John Ossoff have a chance of picking up a Senate seat? Yeah, I think Georgia at this point, it's going to be it's going to be very close. You know, if the, assuming the polls hold and that you have a decent sized Biden lead, Georgia right now is sort of the state in the median. It's not the tipping point for 270, but it's the tipping point for where we are right now that as we've seen these demographic changes in Georgia, that is the Atlanta suburbs, that you sort of have them going in two directions. One said you have these sort of Republicans in Cobb County who are now voting Democrats, the sort of suburban Romney voters who swung and, you know, may have voted for Hillary, voted for Ossoff, voted for Stacey Abrams. On the other hand, you have all this huge demographic growth. You have immigrants coming from all over the world. You have African-Americans moving down uh, to Georgia. You have new registration. That is this big boom there. It's a question of whether the Republican base can hold on in, in sort of in South Georgia, these rural white Republicans, who actually may have been Democrats 20 years ago when Atlanta was more Republican, uh, whether there are enough of them left. In 2018, Stacey Abrams lost because Brian Kemp had managed to pull just enough people out of rural Georgia to overcome everything that she did in Atlanta. And it's a question how long those dynamics can hold. What about voting? What What is your sense on on the actual process of voting? We're talking about again today. This is this seems to be a busy time here in uh, in politics because right now Louis DeJoy, the uh, postmaster general, is before the House uh, getting a grilling about what the changes he's been making to the post office. But in Atlanta, uh, you have a lot of changes on how people are going to vote. I think they're opening up the sporting venues, perhaps, to uh, take in uh, more in-person voters to avoid the issues they had during the primary a couple months ago. What is your sense on the way people will vote when it's all said and done? In the abstract, I think it's going to be a little bit of a mess. I think it's still... Uh we're going to have enough issues in terms of the fact that the mechanics of this are going to be tough, that even if things run relatively smoothly, so many of these states that haven't dealt with absentee ballots in this level of numbers before are going to be overwhelmed by this. And I think it's almost certain that you know this is not going to be the type of election where you can declare a winner at 827 East Coast time or 1127 East Coast time or 1127 East Coast time three days later. That I think the terms of how the ballots work, that there's going to be enough delays because it takes time to count these ballots, it becomes really tough. Um, and that's before you get to issues with lines. In Georgia primary, I talked to one 
one well-connected Democrat down there whose wife waited five hours in line, that as you've cut down on polling places, there's less capacity as you cut down on polling workers, because so many of these poll workers are old, retired people, where this is a chance to be social, make a little bit of extra money, um, that it's going to be a mess, and that there's plenty of stuff that can be done to mitigate it, which will be done on a state-by-state level. But the disruptions, even in the smoothest, you know, if it's the most oil-oiled machine possible, it's still going to create all sorts of issues. As of today here in North Carolina, we're at 400,000 absentee ballot requests. We've never even been close to that many ballot requests, so uh, it's going to be interesting. Ben, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much for having me. Where can people uh, follow you? Because I know you report for different outlets. How can people best follow you and keep up with what you got going on? On Twitter would probably be the best way, at Ben C. Jacobs. Okay, at Ben C. Jacobs on Twitter. And again, thank you so much and good luck as the campaign rolls on. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.